Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Exorcism of Emily Rose, starring Laura Linney, Tom Wilkinson, Campbell Scott, and Jennifer Carpenter. Written by Scott Derrickson and Paul Harris Boardman, and directed by Scott Derrickson. Welcome back to Rise Smile Films. It's time to venture down the aisles of the video store this week again, and we're going to pick out film number two and Matt's picks and recommendations here. And I'll let you introduce what are we talking about today, other than I just said it a second. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about this film a lot on the show. We finally yeah. decided this is a good time, to, or we, I decided it was mm-hmm. a good time to get to it. So yeah, this is The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Mm-hmm. Now for people that listen, uh, you know, the regulars, they know where I am at on this film. So I don't think the reveal is going to be anything that's astounding. And I wouldn't probably pick a film that was terrible sure. in my video aisle selection cast. Yeah, But uh, there's some interesting elements, I think, in this that are going to take us down a very secular and non-secular discussion. Mm -hmm. And certainly we have a lot to talk about with Scott Diedrichson and the cast of this film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting cast, uh, interesting director. uh, I said Diedrichson, I meant Derrickson, sorry. Phyllis Diedrichson. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, yeah, melding a couple different genres here. It's horror. It's a little uh, kind of demonic possession film. It's a little courtroom drama. Maybe, maybe, I was going to say, a majority courtroom drama. So, yeah, we got a ton to talk about today. I can't wait to to venture. I hadn't seen this film in years, so this was kind of a a good uh, return to this one. But uh, new whiskey this week. Uh, This is the Eagle Rare, age 10 years. Uh, So thank you, Matt. Is this your... your, I lost the summer box office bottle, right? That's what it is. Excellent, excellent. What a nice way to lose, though, right? I'll let you do the honors. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it, much like this film. It's a it's a lose win, right? Yeah. <laughs> Eagle Rare, age ten years. Yeah. I want to say we've had Eagle Rare before, we but have. I don't think we've had this particular one. So, cheers, cheers to you. Oh yeah. You got to pour one out for Belial over there in the corner. Exactly. Or six of them. <laughs> or six of them near. And we can't wait to talk about uh, the all the demons in there. She got a pretty uh, top-tier demon uh, <laughs> infecting her, right? Yeah. But, hey, let's get started as we always do. Let's get started with our fly question. As we alluded to uh, in our initial discussion, uh, this film toys the lines with a couple different genres. The most prominent one that well, we will be discussing is that of the courtroom drama. And I don't think we've really done like like a, a courtroom courtroom film, right? How, I, my memory, yeah, I just yeah. I, I don't think we we haven't done like a few know, good men. Did we ever do a few good men? We didn't do a few good men or Twelve Angry Men or To Kill a Mockingbird. So mm. you know those would be like the pretty big ones. But uh, I think an interesting. A place to showcase a horror film, right? Yeah. So my night, our flight question to you is: 
whether you need to kind of redo the film that currently exists or if you want to save it for a sequel, but give me your top three horror films that could have a courtroom drama angle added to them or done entirely. You want to go three, three, two, two, one, one? Yeah. Okay, checking in at number three for me is Rosemary's Baby. This is post the first one, so sequel. And what I want is mom's gone. This child's been born into this uh, single fatherhood household. And with the natural investigation upon the death, I'm assuming Rosemary is done away with, Mm -hmm. upon the investigation of the death from the coroner, a couple of red flags get thrown up, which then turns it over to a representative from some social services element. And this social services element investigation begins to uncover a few more truths and a little bit more about all the um, The parties that seem to be far too interested. The tenants of the building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which then takes and puts her, I think this has to be a her, Mm -hmm. in a position of maternal protagonist against what seems to be a legacy of evil, debaucherous Satanists. Mm -hmm. And in that, I think what we get is, what is the baby? Now, not what is the baby, it's it's mortal. Mm-hmm. But where on the spectrum of good and evil does the baby lie? Yeah. And, you know, certainly it's not going to have me a pharaoh in there, so the star power wouldn't be there. And I'm not sure if, I don't even recall the the father. Oh, <laughs> or, John Cassavetes. Oh, John Cassavetes. Yeah. We've heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's sort of where I'd like that to go. Okay. Uh, that's pretty interesting and it's going to end up in a courtroom for sure yeah got to get that baby up on the stand <laughs> John Cassavetes and the people and the, the tenants of the house that would yeah. turn Ruth Gordon yeah yeah on Rosemary the deceased Rosemary mm-hmm. with this wild tale of lies and untruths mm-hmm. that gets uncovered and uncovered has a detective element to it as well I just don't know what this poor social worker slash lawyer is going to uncover and sure. there discovery period if you will yeah it's uh they all it's they're very manipulative type of characters which is kind of that whole first movie right but then taking that element and putting it up on the the court of law stage right yeah you are under oath here (laughs) just they continue to lie under their breath right Mm -hmm. and there's that creepy baby in that creepy baby carriage over there Mm. there is a sequel to that book i've never read it before maybe they tried to do a tv movie of it it's called son of rosemary Mm. and it's the same author ira levin uh, that wrote that one. Didn't he do Stepford Wives as well? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love it. I'd love to see that. Couldn't be any worse than the first one. I know that neither <laughs> one of you are they premise wise. It's okay. But sure. execution wise leaves a little bit or a lot to be desired. Absolutely. Excellent. Good three, choice. Thanks. Three for you. Number three. Uh, this is a franchise. It's getting some play as we speak right now. And you want to talk about just doing something different, something wild, something crazy. Uh, give me saw whatever number. But as a courtroom drama. Uh, So we might have to kind of redo the mythology of John Kramer, the jigsaw killer, a little bit where he's on the stand for his crimes. And then there there and that would be interesting, being that he hasn't, like, killed anybody, that the people killed themselves through his traps, right? Mm -hmm. So what's that going to look like through a court of law? But can you imagine, too, also a saw thing where it's like, oh, this jury's going to convict me. And I'm going to put the jury in a, in a trap scenario. Yeah, so yeah. it's, uh, yeah, saw in a courtroom, literally 
and now they have to kind of pass own judgment amongst each other. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that could play out pretty well for a series that's, you know, done some crazy things and timelines and mythologies and, and sequels and prequels. Uh, I say a courtroom fits right into the mythos of that long running series. Mm. Good. Yeah. I'm curious about this new one too, Matt. Saw X10. Can't believe there's 10. Been reading some stuff saying it's the best one of the series so far. And I'm like, oh man, I might have to get my eyes on this thing. Wow. <laughs> right? Do so, you have, some, have you seen all the previous oh, nights? I sure have, yeah. Okay, so uh, you'll want to do rec work. And it's a wild journey. I do have to say that last one that they did, the Chris Rock one, Spiral. Whew, man, that's some trash. Terrible. <laughs> really bad. <laughs> Been a while since Chris Rock has had a uh, feature that's done sure. real well, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not the biggest Saw guy, so... Um, I'm not sure that I'm equipped really to kind of speak that I've only seen the first two. So, yeah. but I know that it certainly is popular. Oh yeah. And I do recognize that the strategy that Jigsaw puts together would play really well, especially with 12 people who are in judgment of him. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's loaded. Yeah. Good. Love it. Nice duality there. Thank you. Number two for me erases some mistakes after what's the sequel and I think what's five films now, so we can get rid of number three, we can get rid of um, Covenant, we can get rid of um, oh, that's the first. It's Alien. It's yeah, Prometheus. Prometheus. Yeah. Here's what I want. Let's get after Aliens second film. Mm-hmm. Let's get Ripley up on the up on the stand against Whalen Yutani. Yeah. And then I think all sins can be revealed about what they were after now. How horrifying this is going to be, I don't know, because I'm not going to bring an alien into the courtroom because that would be silly. But I think that there... Hey, man, that alien's got to testify. <laughs> yeah. But I think there is backstory once she uncovers what the mission statement of Waylon yutani is or we uncover what Mother's goal was and all of the pieces that speak to the larger conglomerate corporation that's bloodthirsty. Mm. And... In much a similar way this film does it, I think the sins of Waylon Yutani and thus the creation possibly or discovery of the alien. So it's a sequel, but it might serve as a prequel mm-hmm. to the first one. Sure. Are uncovered in the testimonials of the players that we see. And it it gets rid of we're mad at the universe because we killed Jesus, or unless we want to go that way, mm-hmm. it clears up a lot of the murkiness over the engineers and the siring of an alien with the engineer into engineer alien xenomorph uh, clears up all of that stuff in, in covenant. Uh, I think yeah. it makes it a cleaner, fresher story to be told. Yeah. I like it. Space court. Yeah. Uh, now, Mr. Xenomorph, were, were you on LV 426 on June 21st, mm-hmm. 2199? <laughs> That's all you would hear. Hey, I dig it. And you know, Aliens opens up with kind of like a Wayland yutani uh, commission uh, questioning Ripley on what happened on the Nostromo and what happened to all your people and why would you blow up a $20 billion vessel worth of ore? She's like, yeah, because I blew this thing out of the airlock and I said, yeah, sayonara. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, putting Wayland on the stand for, yeah, we knew what this thing was. Yeah, we wanted to weaponize it. Yeah, we set up this colony as just complete fodder, harvesting fodder. Yeah, I'm down. You know, you know how much I hate them as, as I think that they're they're very efficient as a corporation villain, mm-hmm. much like OCP, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, to put all on the stand with Sigourney Weaver, just kind of giving them hell. Uh, 
Yeah, sign me up. I think that sounds great. Could be fun. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And Thanks. you're right. I think uh, if we want to address the origin of this thing, might be a, a more clear-cut way to do that than what Prometheus gave us, right? Yeah. Good choice. Right. Thanks. Two for you. My number two for me, kind of kind of playing around in like uh, redoing a prequel with kind of an in-between sequel, uh, I think there's a lot of fruit on this vine that we don't really get to see other than what the kind of the television show did, but had they taken this route with Anthony Hopkins, I think uh, Hannibal Lecter on the stand pre-Silence of the Lambs or years before, and then even Red Dragon and Manhunter, right? Mm-hmm. The initial trial of Hannibal Lecter for... His crimes, right? Hannibal the Cannibal, this pristine doctor that is so intellectually smart, but he's also a complete psychopath, right? Uh, facing the crimes for killing however many people he killed. An insight into his origins, which would be Hannibal Rising, right? Which isn't amazing. And then the nature of his crimes leading up to Will Graham arresting him and also getting stabbed in the process, right? Yeah. I think that could be pretty cool. And, you know, if we got Anthony Hopkins back in in that role again, I think a courtroom drama with the most superior intellectual that we've ever seen, right? Can you imagine him going tit for tat with the the defense attorneys? Yeah, love it. And I don't think we need to have him break out and eat some people on the in-between. I think there's enough drama and spooks in just telling what he did to people leading up to his arrest. You know... You're in the same space I am with this. Again, what happened a lot in this film. It leads to a natural narrative in backstory that's not as clunky as sometimes we see it rolled out in film otherwise. Because on the stand, you have to tell what happened to get you there. And you can stay on POV on person sitting in the chair Mm -hmm. and just watch them. Or you can visualize the narrative as they're giving it in real time, prequel time. Yeah, There's a lot of play there, man. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, I want to see that film too. And uh, what was I gonna say? Uh, yeah, did you did you burn the show at all? The one with Mads Mikkelsen and mm-hmm. Hugh Dancy? I never did. Actually, pretty great, and it, it it worked as a procedural and as kind of an arcing narrative in that there was kind of like a ghoul of the week, like a kill of the week. But Hannibal was working so closely with the FBI in that show that, you know, he's like giving them tips. And he's like, and eh, this guy is like, yeah, you, here's a tip for you. It's like, uh, but secretly, it's, it's me that's doing it. Uh, and then he's cooking up the most delicious delicacies of human body parts and feeding them to these people left and right. Uh, fantastic show. I, I think it, it could have uh, been around for a couple more seasons, but has a, a short three on its lifespan there. So that's my number two. I like that. Mm-hmm. I think Anthony Hopkins in that space too could be really good. Mm-hmm. Do you want Anthony Hopkins now or do you want Anthony Hopkins 10 years ago? Oh, 20 years ago. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where he still is like, you know, really putting forth a lot of effort. Uh, yeah. I think that could have been a lot of fun. Yeah. Me mm-hmm. too. Number one for me. Are you ready? Yes. Halloween after number two. Yeah. And you know who I want to be sued? Loomis. <laughs> Okay, that was a possibility, okay. and I'm not saying yes, possible for b- neglect. Yeah, but Lori. Okay, the people that have hey, someone's got to atone for Ben Tramer's explosion in the middle <laughs> of the street, right? It's weird to go after the final girl. Okay, but going after the final girl as a result of neglect in the space where you are supposed to be in charge of younger. Um, caregiving. Yeah, of the kids. And then you take the death that's around that and the anger 
that people experience when death happens and finding this kind of happens all the time, sadly, whatever scapegoat is around. I think then what you get is a look into Laurie Strode and her breakdown of the boogeyman. And then the question becomes in that third film, do we have Michael come back? Because we're not going to put him on the stand. But the question is... So, yeah, if it was part two, he's all burnt to a crisp, right? Yeah, I think I want this after two. Mm-hmm. So let's finish the hospital, get okay. her out, gets cleaned up, and the next thing, she's being sued. Yeah. And that brings up a whole other piece of, if we can't find him, yeah. and you can't prove that this boogeyman exists, then you're full of shit. And then we begin, yeah. her and Pleasance, probably on the same team working to try to find this. And I think that's a more natural state yeah. to bring him back in than just still stalking the streets yeah. of small town, USA, Illinois, Haddonfield, you know, Haddonfield, Illinois. Yeah. I, I want to see that. Yeah. I, I think this is one where, you know, where we don't need Hannibal running amok in the courthouse. Right. I kind of want Michael running amok in the courthouse. Right. Could Eventually happen. in the last act. Right. Could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they have to go find him like as evidence, right. Or he finds them that they're still around. What if he's, I mean, this is a stretch and I'm not sure I love this idea. What if he's one of the jury members? Michael? I don't know. Not, not masked. Yeah. Not masked. Cause the I, question I, then would be, it'd have to be Michael in a natural state. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I, I, I don't know if he's intellectually up for the challenge. Right. I mean, that's the six year old brain there that just wants to come home. And in the, your timeline wants to kill his sister. Yeah. Uh, but he would need to make an appearance. I like that. I think that's a great setting for a Halloween film. If the jury is sequestered mm-hmm. due to the hyper-sensationalized sensitivity of the case, mm-hmm. and they're sequestered in a hotel or someplace where they're away from the media, yeah. guess what we have set up? Yeah. Perfect kill ground. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. I like that, and it's fresh. It's a, it's a fresh perspective on a very wild franchise, right? Yeah. I just don't know if you want... I don't know if you want Loomis getting up on that stand because you know what he's going to say. I shot him six times. <laughs> I think that's why that's the, why we like it, though, because sure, yeah, he, he would be wild. He'd be a wild card in the courtroom and he would be her best defense ally. Yeah. Oh, man. Dude, that's, and fuck, look yeah, out. Yeah, talk about all that. He's my best. My best choice. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I like that. You know me, I'm the Halloween guy, so I like any type of interesting, fresh perspectives into that franchise. Awesome. And I think you could have a lot of a lot of fun with that. Yeah. All right, number one, bud, let's hear it. I have a few honorable mentions too. Oh, okay. I don't I don't know if you 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 have a couple as well. We can list those off here in a second. Uh yeah, I think I need to redo the results of the ending of my film. I think I'm gonna go scream on this one. Mm. And you know, instead of doing away with Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker, let's put these nuts on the stand. And kind of learn about what all their motivations was. Is it all motivated by uh, Sydney's mom hooking up with Billy Loomis's father and ruining his family's life? Is there more to it than that? Mm-hmm. Is it really they're obsessed with scary movies and that drove them to madness? Uh, but then, much like your film, it's all got to go tits up in Act 3. And I want Ghostface running around this courtroom, these two guys, right? Mm-hmm putting the survivors on the stand and you know, all of that. I think, I think that could be a lot of fun for a series that I think more times than not 
falls into way too familiar territory with another copycat following in the footsteps only to get killed by the final girl, right? Yeah. No one really learns a lesson, so this could really kind of supplant those expectations. And There's some plausibility with the final girl that I think we both like. How come you survived? Mm-hmm. All of these murders and deaths are around you. Yeah. And you're the one that survived, and mm-hmm. there doesn't just seem to be an anecdotal one or two. There's an, like habit yeah. or a repetition through six. Mm-hmm. I think you might be the murderer. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I, th- and I think these courtroom dramas work really well when you have like big personalities on the stand. I mean, you get Gail Weathers up there. Yeah. You get Do- Dewey Cox. Not Dewey Cox. <laughs> I was going to say Dewey Cox, but Dewey Riley. Yeah. <laughs> David Arquette up there. Um, uh, what's his name? Jamie Kennedy, uh, yeah. Randy yeah. up there. And yeah, I think, I think you can have some, it, it might even venture into more true crime territory than like straight slasher town. So, but there would be some slashing at the end for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. These guys get out somehow and they have, they get their ghost face garb and just start going nuts. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's some interesting perspective. Any honorable mentions for you? Any, any that, just kind of uh, outside of the top three? No, because I'm going to save them for the nightcap. Mm. So I have, I'd like some ones that we'll see if they can play in the nightcap if you don't use them. Yeah, I'll mention them briefly. I won't go into detail, but I thought Psycho, the the trial of Norman Bates, I thought sounded pretty cool. Yep. And then the prequel slash first film that I'm still waiting for, man, you just call it Kruger. Uh, mm-hmm. The trial of Fred Kruger on Nightmare on Elm Street that leads to him getting acquitted and then murdered, right? Mm-hmm justifiably murdered but then they inherently create a dream demon (laughs) while doing so yeah i don't know if you remember the show freddy's nightmares but it was it was around for a little bit kind of around you know parts four and five in the early 90s and the first pilot episode directed by toby hooper actually does kind of do a trial of of kruger but in a way that's so TV low budget, it mm. doesn't really get its its due, and it's not Robert England. So, mm. um, but I'm curious about that. Yeah, because what's been told to us in backstory, well, you know, someone didn't sign the search warrant, so he got off, even though he killed and mur- uh, you know murdered all these kids on Elm Street. Uh, I think there's a lot of play there. It's the part of the story that I've always just I want more detail into what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Is Freddie? I mean, he's such a cackling buffoon in the dream space. What's the real life Freddie look like? Is he a high personality? Is he playing for uh, towards the jury? Like, what what is what is he doing out there? So yeah, uh, yeah. So my honorable mentions there. But can, it, I, do, can I do one after all? Yeah, I know you still got to do number one. Can I do? Let, let's do your number one, then I'll do one because I think maybe it'll play better now than it will. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it before. Let's do your number one first. Honorable mentions. Oh, those are the two. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I got one then, and it's one we've talked about on the show. We've never gotten to. It's never coming. It's been sort of rumored. I want It Follows 2. Oh, yeah. I want It Follows 2. Just pick up where the story ended. Mm -hmm. How far down the line has this thing been passed? Is the demon really dead? And what's what's the next phase in this? There was so much meat on that bone. Mm Mm-hmm. And the rumors on that of sequels are as dead as dead can be. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard anything in years. It's too bad. Man, I love that film. Mm-hmm, me too. Yeah. Go back. Go back and listen to that. Ep- I think that Years was three. No, I think it was last, last October we did that one. Oh, did we? Okay. Yeah. Great choice. You too. Yeah. I think fun, fun to, to kind of 
place things in different genres and just see how they play. And I guess, yeah, we'll follow up on that just a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But let's get to the journey at hand here in our review breakdown of The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I don't care about my reputation. What I care about is telling Emily Rose's story. that her actual possession began that night at the hospital? I think she did. Emily had epilepsy. Father Moore's beliefs are based on superstition. Did Father Moore ask you to give her any medical help? I couldn't help her. Why couldn't you help her? Because there are no injections against the devil. Emily? Hey, can you hear me? Alrighty, so The Exorcism of Emily Rose, we get in, kind of how we like in stories, I mean, we get in pretty late in, in this thing with, like, a medical examiner going to kind of see what's going on here on the the Rose farmstead, and everything's kind of gone gone to hell, literally and figuratively yeah. uh, here, and it's the, the post-aftermath of all this exercising, right, and she's died, and the natural instinct from the, you know, authorities, from law enforcement, better arrest this man that was mostly likely responsible. Mm-hmm. And that's Tom Wilkinson, father Moore. Yep. Morris. Moore. Moore. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting, I, I think, opening just because, you know, obviously we have to build up to the actual exorcism of the story, much like Friedkin's The Exorcist. We're not going to show that right away. We got to, like, really take our time and and build to it. Um, but I was surprised with this viewing and I, I think maybe I misremembered aspects of the film. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this while we were watching, uh, it's a pretty, it's, it's a, it's a slow burn, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. uh, we're really, we take our time with this court case to really establish all the, the rules, the players and the incident at hand. And then by the time we get to the exorcist, I mean, we're like at an hour and 25 minutes in, into the film, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that? What do you think of the pacing of, of the film? Does it work for you? Is it does it lag in some areas? And yeah, maybe we'll, we'll start there. No, it, it works perfectly for me. And I think what it does is it creates a more visceral reaction. You saw it to the moments of horror that happen because mm-hmm. it's such a stark contrast to the dialogue-heavy courtroom drama or the pre-courtroom investigation slash preparation with the witnesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, It works perfectly for me. You have to be careful in horror because we don't want to do so much of the bad that we get Pennywise and it stops becoming scary and it starts becoming laughable. Yeah, overdo it. Again, this is the, one of the mantras of the show. (laughs) Yeah. Less is more. Yeah. And I think in this particular case, the less element is enough to keep the pump primed with the yikes Mm -hmm. that happens when we see Jennifer Carpenter going through the fantastic body 
destruction she puts upon herself and the way she's able to sort of carry that out. And to her, she's all in on this Yeah. compared to the prim, proper, secular, sterile, mm-hmm. dare I say, formal element of the courtroom composed or contrasted with all of the not courtroom hell that this woman's going through. Mm-hmm. And the other stark reality in that is, for me, the courtroom is a place with plenty of personalities and to a certain degree, safety in numbers. Even the jury offers safety numbers because there's 11 other after you. Yeah. Emily Rose is doing this mostly by herself. Mm-hmm. Well, her and the six demons that are inhabiting <laughs> yeah, her body. Yeah. So I guess a party of seven. But... <laughs> um. And so that works really well for me. It's not a slow burn. It, I, I get the argument it's slow, and I can see how people would say that. Yeah. Um, but not for me. How about for you? Yeah, no, I think for the most part, I think it works. I, You know, it's probably 20 minutes a little too long uh, for, you know, for, you know, the amount of content that they have in there. I mean, we spend a lot of time, like, at, like, Laura Linney's apartment and, like, waking mm-hmm. up with her. And, like, there's a lot of that, you know, those types of shenanigans. But... Uh, yeah, so maybe 20 minutes shorter for me and then maybe like one or two more scenes with Emily Rose. I don't want to reach the point of oversaturation like you mentioned uh, because the moments that are in here that work, they do work really well. And I think that's why I want to see more of them because those moments are so effective and mm-hmm. she is so good at playing this possessed 19-year-old, right? So I guess that's kind of my want and take away from the structure and pace of the film, but... Uh, I think we do a good job of jumping back and forth and, you know, through the testimony, we do get to see elements of those past through the unravel unraveling of the, the, the questions and, and, and everything. So I, th- I think that, 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 that itself is, is pretty interesting, but the story gets going right away. Right. I mean, you know, he's arrested and now we're hiring. I love this location too. I don't even know. It was it called sideways. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Sidewinder or, or something, but it, we'll just call it law, Lawyer Bar, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's where all these attorneys meet after after a day's work. I think get, it's called Sidebar. Sidebar, I yeah. think it is called Sidebar. Yeah. yeah. Just to get, like, trashed and, you know, discuss their next cases or how high up on the pedestal they are. Laura Linney's character, Aaron Bruner, is, uh, I guess, has some clout to her name, and she just put away this, you know, high-level offender. We don't even really know a lot of details on this case other than, like, people know it by name, right? Yeah. And so, you know, her boss, you know, comes to her, Comfior, and is like, the archdiocese handpicked you to to do this thing. They know your name. They want you to represent this father. And she's like, eh, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I'm already kind of a non-believer, so what good am I, an agnostic, to really represent a member of the Catholic Church, right? Uh, So that's an interesting question. I think, you know, we'll have to discuss whether, you know, her arc is fulfilled or not by by the end of the the story. But there is a lot of hubris, I think, with her character, right? A high-profile attorney uh, being, being willing to take on any challenge, and we'll see what barriers befall her. Yeah, and the conversation she has with Colm Fiore in the bar is, upon taking this case... This might be your rocket um, your rocket ship to stardom. Somewhere in the not too distant past is a misstep by her at the law firm that she represents. And Comfior mentions to her, um, what the hell's his name in that? Carl. Carl Gunderson. Mr. Gunderson, attorney Gunderson Esquire, uh, tells her, 
this particular case coupled with the one that you just completed have stardom written all over it if you can deliver. And she basically says, I'll take this on for you, but I'm not waiting for partnership or to be brought into the law firm at the highest level any longer. Yeah. You owe me. I'm good enough. We all know it. Yeah. I want my name in the title. Right. And yeah. And there is a little bit of the glass ceiling sort of effect that maybe she's fighting against, uh, because she is, is, I look kind of closely today. She's the only woman in this bar. Mm -hmm. When we see all these lawyers that she's the only one in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I can understand why she wants to be recognized for her good work but it's also going to be kind of weaponized against her, not only by the law firm, but also by the demon Bilal <laughs> yeah. a little bit later on. We'll by get into that in a bit. By some demons, right? Yeah. Uh, That's a nice setup. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I think we want, I don't know if we want our attorneys to necessarily be the good guys because I don't know how you justify a lawyer as being a good person more times than not, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you got Campbell Scott walking around this movie, and man, what was the first thing I said was, I don't know, I think he needs to shave this stash because, uh, hey, it's a choice. It's it's a choice that he made for this character. Maybe it's helping him in, in his particular performance, but they, he's kind of been hired as like the Christian man to rule on the part of science to disprove Father Moore's accusations, right? Uh, that's pretty good casting there. Uh, where I do struggle a little bit with the film is with Laura Linney and I think and Tom Wilkinson as well. Uh, I think they're fine in the film. I think they're pretty good actors to to the thing, but with a concept as juicy as this one, this is The Exorcist in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. Man, I kind of want some bigger names here. I kind of want, I think, you know, I, I told you my problems with Laura Linney are just, you know, I always want more from her than what she she gives. I like what you said. If you're going to use Laura Linney, go all the way and get me Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman, yeah. And, you know, it just it's just the, that that I feel that way about her in Ozark. Uh, and you're not watching Ozark for Laura Linney. I mean, that's the Bateman and Julia Garner show and that, that thing, right? For sure. Yeah. Uh, but like Mothman Prophecies is another kind of similar film to this one where it's like playing this like scully light, right? Yeah. Um, this the the skeptic. Yeah, give me Gillian Anderson in this movie. That might work pretty well for me. Mm -hmm. Uh and then the same with Tom Wilkinson. I, I think he, he's he's in the bit of like a a a, a high point in this 2005 era because he's in the bedroom. In the bedroom. He's in Batman Begins as Falcone. Uh He's in John Adams, the the TV miniseries. So he's kind of having a moment here. But man, get me Robert De Niro in this in this role is kind of like uh I think just some more high profile names to just bring some attention to to this thing and and bring a little bit more gravitas to these these pretty interesting roles. Well, I don't think you have to stop with those two if that's the way you're gonna go. Yeah. I mean, there may be a personal issue. <laughs> <laughs> with the choice there, I don't mean like I don't, I'm not saying you're grinding that way, but I mean it is. Yeah, you're not you're not after them the way that yeah. you said for me, like Charlie Day. Like I won't watch anything with Charlie Day in yeah. at this point. I just I won't watch it. Mm -hmm. I can't stand him. Mm -hmm. It's personal. Mm -hmm. But you can make that same case with Campbell Scott. Yeah. Why isn't this Downey Jr.? Oh man, that's yeah, we're making a, an all star movie. And then if you want to go that way with. Jennifer Carpenter, although she's, she's terrific. She's the only one I don't want, I, I need her as is, right? She plays horrific really well, but part of the issues, and I don't I don't necessarily have some of the 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 pause with the first two that you mentioned, mm -hmm. but I get it. I, I get where you're coming from. The question then is, 
does Scott Derrickson at this time have the gravitas to pull that? Because maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know the other one that is Laura Lenny, I think that could play this great is Vera Farmiga. Mm, yeah. So, and I was thinking about that after you said it. Well, this is right around the departed, right? The departed. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, can we talk about Derrickson for a minute? Sure. Graduate of Biola University Film School. Belial University. <laughs> My first uh, interaction with Biola University was at a basketball camp that I went to, and I was a really, really young coach. And mm. they were they were brought in for the coaches to use as the practice dummies to demonstrate the drills and ideas that the coaches were showing the other. And it was this was like Alford when he was. Um, at Southwest Missouri State, Shashevsky yeah. was there, Tubby Smith, like this was mm. big, Knight was there. These were big time, it was, yeah. it was like a Nike summer coaches thing. That's awesome. And they, yeah, it was cool. And so they put a floor down in the MGM and we had one of the ballrooms rented out and there were a bunch of, uh, you know, coaches that's packed with coaches, high school and small college. Anyway, they needed a team to come in that the coaches could demonstrate their drills with. And Biola was the team that they brought in. Well, Biola is a non-secular Christian university. So Scott Derrickson, and if we'll get into this, is heading to his filmography, which mm-hmm. I'm going to hand the baton off to you in just a minute so you can run through that. Yeah. Among other things, Dr. Strange, mm-hmm. I think is a really good choice for this Yeah. because this plays in such a secular versus non-secular secular space. Courtroom drama over possession. Yeah. About as hard and fast as you can get with law juxtaposed with the mysticism of religion. Mm -hmm. And I think for Derrickson and attending Biola and getting a degree in film from there, he adheres to those non-secular beliefs, which you wouldn't know that from his film, but I think he's a really good choice for this material. Back to the point I'm making, it's just too young. This is basically his second film. It's just too young for him to probably pull the cast Mm -hmm. that you and I are fantasizing about sure yeah it's uh this movie made money yeah it did yeah and it was made won for, a bunch of like independent um film awards too yeah, yeah. an mtv movie award as well did it really i didn't Jennifer know that Carpenter. oh wow best frightened performance uh yeah you know, those awards are i don't it didn't win spirit but it won it's something close to spirit like this yeah, like, highly decorated film yeah the saturn awards are yeah there you like go saturn right. sci-fi and horror yeah uh, yeah, I don't know if, uh, how well he equip, equipped he is at this time to handle, but I'm, I'm with you. Like when you make these, you know, possession demonically tinted films, you think you need filmmakers that fall on either one side of the aisle. You can't have someone who's just so down the middle that they don't have a say in either thing. So whether it's Friedkin and his, you know, whatever his beliefs are, or Richard Donner and the Omen, I think those films work because they believe in either one of the other sides of what they're trying to get through to the audience. Yeah, And I think that that, that is here as well. And we see a lot of that with Campbell Scott v. Linney, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, his filmography is bizarre. And I, I don't know if I can really pin Scott Derrickson. I don't know if I want to call him a master of horror, like the which, the likes of which I would atone uh, an Ari Aster or a Jordan Peele, or people, the other people, people, even Brandon Cronenberg, and we've only had like like two really prolific ones from him, right? But it's the first film, Hellraiser Five, which you know I rewatched recently, and he says in the trivia it was always intended to be a Hellraiser film, but when you watch it, it's essentially a seven ripoff, and you get the feeling that the mention and the Weinstein were. 
uh, was like, eh, seven, throw Pinhead into that script too. It's like one of those movies, right? It's like, oh yeah, this is that. And then they added this thing to it as well. It's not good. Then you have this. Then you have some other like interesting, like Doctor Strange, which Sinister. I think- I think works really well for us. And the yeah, Sinister, which I need to revisit. I haven't seen it since the theater. And I speak, I hear people speak very highly, highly of that film in its horror space. So yeah. I need to go reassess. But I didn't care for the the last one that he had. Black Phone with yeah. Ethan Hawke. Essentially yeah. the ghost phone. I wanted to be in the pitch meeting of that film. I'm like, how did that get greenlit on how ridiculous that concept mm-hmm. is at the end of the day? And is it the Derrickson name? Is he does have some cloud in the horse space, which I think he does. But I don't know if I can call like a lot of these films like the masterpieces of the genre. But he does deliver a pretty good product. I think he would, and I think he was. That's a perfect filmmaker for Doctor Strange, right? Yeah, and he was supposed to do number two, and actually ended up having a lot of the writing for most of the films that he done fall under his his name too. We got a pretty good horror director to fill in. For no, him, we did though. for <laughs> sure. There was no, yeah, no question about that. Yeah, yeah. Back to your point regarding the gravitas that he holds in the horror community as a great director or a noticeable director mm-hmm. in that genre. I think it's there. Mm-hmm. I think he's still a couple away. If it's okay. So Hellraiser five, everybody's got to start with something, <laughs> right? So it's a script. He got it across the finish line and it gets him this, this is a win. Yeah. Uh, we can get into sinister and I probably need to review that one too. Not mm-hmm. my favorite, but yeah, that'd be a fun one to do on here. If his filmography is Hellraiser five, this sinister and Dr. Strange, we are having a far different conversation than we are right now yeah. because black phone and he's got some other interesting credits too, that mm-hmm. are in TV. Um, yeah. And I think some of these, I mean, they play well for, you know, a lot of other horror watchers and viewers and stuff, but there always feels like there's like an element missing from some of these films that I don't know. And whether that's him, whether that's the visual look, he, he um, doesn't seem like he's particularly busy often. Sure, yeah. For as long as he's been at it, yeah. there's stuff, don't get me wrong, There's and there's a bunch of TV stuff that we can get into. Mm-hmm. If you want, I can pull it up because there's some pretty interesting stuff on there. Yeah. He just doesn't seem all that busy. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is that because he's a pain in the ass? Is that because he's always over budget? You know, there's all these things in the producers. Or maybe he just chooses his projects to just... Yeah. I want to do that one at this at this time. I don't know. I guess you know. To, so to circle back to your question on you know, Derrickson at this point in his career, yeah, I think it's a fantastic idea. I think this is a very high concept idea. Uh, exorcist, literally exorcist in a courtroom, and we're. Pull- well, you know what else is in there? Is the day the earth stood still? Oh, the Keanu, Keanu Reeves, Reeves one. one yeah. yeah, so that's yeah, not a small movie. Deliver us from evil. Yeah, I didn't like that one. That's the Eric Bana possession mm-hmm. one, right? Yeah, I don't really. You remember that one too fondly, but uh, or was I going with this? Yeah, it just feels like there's like something missing from this film that could deliver it across the line into some really special territory. Um, he's also executive producer on Snowpiercer, the TV show. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, yes, yes, yes. It's a weird filmography, yeah, man. He has some hand in 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 a lot of this stuff. Do you want to give him another crack? At, oh, for like, sure. Yeah, I'll give him a, a few more cracks because, like I said, like these are, they're not like schlock products. I mean, they're made by Universal. They're made by, you know, Screen Gems, Sony Pictures, you know, whatnot. So, no, for sure, I'll give him another another fair Blumhouse. I think Sinister's a Blumhouse film. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll give him yeah, a few more cracks. But it's just like, give me just a little bit more. And that's just, that's a selfish thing. That's just fair. I'm trying to, 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 to squeeze a little bit more out of this. 
uh, this idea because and you know would you agree to and then based on a uh, loosely based on a true story as well so we're, we're playing with some story fire here right mm-hmm. kind of single locationy to an extent yeah. I mean we're, we're, we're in you know college campuses and on a lonely farmstead and the courtroom mm-hmm. and the courtroom yeah yeah I'm, I'm with you uh, there seems to be a path forward and I'm curious we'll see how this first exorcist film of this trilogy mm. does but there's some properties I would think that are out there that he could attach his name to. Uh, look, and there's no shortage of, I think, pretty good horror directors right now that we both like. You know, when we're not when they're not busy dicking around with Aquaman, then we're doing some pretty good stuff with The Conjuring. I don't know. Are we, are we, do we have the same feelings about James Wan? I think, you know, The Conjuring cast really kind of turned that in. I know you and I didn't like Malignant. No, but I think James Wan has for sure he's a, a similar path. That, yeah, that, um, I, I, you might argue Derrickson is more successful than James Wan. No, I, I wouldn't say that. Okay, they're similar. Yeah, to create the Saw franchise to where it's at now is impressive, and Insidious also impressive. That the Insidious movie that came out this summer, Insidious: The Red Door, which I didn't see, the biggest earning entry in that particular franchise, which is that's the fifth film in. So go figure. Yeah, I think James Wan's got a leg up on him, even though I have been very lukewarm on the Wan output uh, as of late as well. And you can tell with him that they tried because this film got him the day the earth stood still in 08 with Reeves, which was big, big budget. Yeah. The movie didn't deliver. Mm -hmm. And then to give him Doctor Strange, someone in the studio system or people in the studio system recognize that there is a talent there or at least a marketable talent there. Mm. So... We'll see. I, he's an interesting guy. Uh, I'm just curious in those meetings with his very non-secular upbringing, what projects he tends to lean heavily into mm-hmm. or away from, yeah. or if maybe it doesn't play at all, but you can't have that kind of strict religious upbringing and then not have some of those beliefs shine through. And in this film, like it works because this movie plays in that space. Let's talk about the other uh, talent in this film. We mentioned her name already, but the Jennifer Carpenter of it all. As the titular Emily Rose, uh, when we see her early on, I'm always tripped out by this film because I think it, I'm always thinking it takes place in 1960s because they're living on this farm like it's the 1960s. Like it's like a twinge away from like Quaker Town. Uh, with their like old school dresses and oh man, the 11 tabby cats running around. Uh, but she's really good and she gets a great opportunity here. You know, you can kind of see that the family doesn't really have a lot of money, but she got some sort of full ride to some sort of Midwest college, right? And uh, she's going to take that, but that's when the demons start showing. And I really, in particular, really like this first sequence where. You know, she wakes up in the middle of the night during 3 a.m. in the witching hour, and she smells something burning. First thing I would say is, like, you smell burning stuff, make sure, uh, yeah, check if there's not a fire, but then you might be having a stroke as well. Mm. Uh, (laughs) But it's not that, but then she, something comes into the dorm hallway, it's all lit really well, and then this scene plays out almost like this, like, sexual assault, right? I don't know if you saw it that way, but, like... The way it pins her down and kind of like it's like this invisible assault that like it's trying to pull her shirt up. Mm-hmm. And then like 
she's able to release that, but it's almost like the deed has been done, right? The demon has now penetrated her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she plays it so well. I mean, we mentioned her contortioning style of finger movements and whatnot, but her the feature that I just can't look away from in her, man, it's these eyes, right? It's the, mm-hmm. it's the face. Mm-hmm. But these crazy eyes, it's like these sissy spacic mm-hmm. eyes from Carrie, right? Mm-hmm. Which are ever wandering and and just agape with horror. Yeah. Uh I think she's terrific terrific in this film. Uh me too. Definitely the standout for me. Uh and we're asking a lot of her, uh both physically and mentally too. Like I can't imagine playing a role like this and just like I got to be in like a possessed headspace. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Especially if she had any type of a religious upbringing. I mean, that had to be uncomfortable for sure. But what do you think of her and also her interesting career that I could tell you she was in the quarantine or the rec remake quarantine Yep, and a long run on Dexter. Yep. And then a bunch of animated voices from Mortal Kombat to mm. Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Uh, I think she's the current voice of Sonya Blade in the Mortal Kombat verse. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yep. She's great mm-hmm. in this and she was really good in Dexter too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did never did see quarantine all the way through. Um, you saw the better version. Yeah. I made you watch the better the good version. One, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She kills it in this. Mm-hmm. Is it one of those roles where she is so hideous in this film that she becomes uncastable as anything but hideous? Cause sometimes that happens too. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. A little Linda Blair effect. Yeah, right. Right. You just be, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, she's great. And the contortion effects that she does in this are actually her working through range of motion. Mm-hmm. So some of it's camera, but some of it is she's just naturally very bendy. So there's the part in the church when she's fully, okay, so the part Jesse was speaking about is she's in her her dorm room and the demon kind of penetrates her. And there is a beginning of breaking in her soul. And then when she gets put in the hospital, that's when the demon finishes the deed and I guess fully consummates the relationship. Mm -hmm. And now she's fully possessed. After that occur, occurs in the in the hospital room, she winds up in a church, and she's reaching for the cross in this church. I, I think as a an attempt to save herself, like reaching out to the hand of God mm-hmm. for help, and you can see her waist stays fairly linear. Yeah, but her lower back twists to where she's bent. It's hyperextended backwards over herself. And if you look at that, that's not camera. That's just her putting herself in traction. If I do that with my back, I'm, I'm messed up for a little while. She's a notch away from doing smooth criminal, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. Really like upended in weird ways. And then there's another almost borderline hilarious scene in this movie where, uh, I'll play the audio in, in a little bit, but yeah, what she's just going limp and just like having weird finger mm-hmm. movements and whatnot, but her face is naturally pretty gaunt and she's fairly thin. Mm-hmm. So that wiry frame plays well in a horrifying space, especially with the heavy eye makeup that they give her on the bottom, yeah. which makes it look even more vacuous and gaunt. Um, they really do make her look fairly gruesome. Yeah. Two thirds of this film. Mm-hmm hard to watch yeah and you know she's really struggling not only uh going to the hospital but you know eating eating breathing. having to take finals at 10 o'clock at night uh it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, like in the darkest classroom you'll ever see in your life yeah but yeah she's she's really struggling here and it's the scene that trips me out here i'll play a little bit of the audio because it's 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 a little troubling 
held her for a while, trying to calm her down. I fell asleep, but when I woke up, she wasn't beside me. Quite, quite, quite shocking. Yeah, if I if I woke up in in a dorm and my significant other was you know laying there all twisted like a pretzel, <laughs> dude, think I'm out. <laughs> yeah, think I'm out. This guy sticks around, dude. He takes play, he takes part in the exorcism. Save his dude, girl. What I guess. is his end game? Yeah. Oh yeah, she showed him things. Which yeah, I don't I don't know where he's going with right. that. Pre pre uh, uh, exercising, which I don't know. Maybe that's why she was punished. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Good point. Uh, let me play the next clip there and we, and, and we can chat a little bit uh, uh, about it and then get to the court uh, case at hand. Emily, can you hear me? some queen to be taught. Let's get her off the floor. Alice, no! Nickels and Queen Chus have a chat. And Eagles and Queen it in nomine Eus. Non patas me expellere sacerdos. I mean, you don't want to laugh at the end of that scene, but Dad just drops her on her head, right? And I made a little crack of it, like she has a TBI to go along with her demonic possession, right? That yeah. sounds fantastic, right? Uh, but watching it, it that's why I love watching the films with you whenever we get the opportunity, but you were pretty visibly uncomfortable during all the Emily Rose scenes and sequences. What in particular about this? Cause you said this one has always kind of gotten under your skin. I think I'm a little less bothered by it than other exorcism films like the exorcist. Uh, but it's still effective and it's like, I lay a lot of that at the feet of Jennifer Carpenter, but what about it is playing pretty well for you where it's like really getting to you. It looks so painful mm. and it's her joints that she does a really good job of making them steady statue, like in a very unnatural position. You can clutch your fingers and contort them in such a way that it, your hands look like claws, but you can do it the way that she does it where they don't look like their claws. They look like they're demonically arthritic. Mm. And so you see this very young girl that's 19 years old in this pretzeled shape, whether that's on the floor of her boyfriend's dorm room or whether that's in front of the cross at the altar in the church mm -hmm. or in her own bed. 
or like the part you just talked about when dad has her held up and she's having her first conversation as demon with father Moore before she gets dropped on her forehead. Stiff as a, <laughs> stiff as a board, right? It's so unnatural yeah. and rigid and uncomfortable looking that it causes me visceral pain and looking, especially at the one on the dorm room floor. Yeah. Hair stands up on my arms. Her mouth is agape. Those eyes and those irises and pupils are also blacked out. It just looks like such a state of extreme horror that she can't get out of because she's also really good. This is going to sound so silly. Mm -hmm. She's also really good at comatic. She gets it and she holds it. She's not breathing. She's not blinking. There's no variance in her facial expressions. She's just this fucked up statue in this terrible, terrible form in a comatic state, either on the floor or in her bed. And it almost looks like rigor mortis, Jesse. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Like living rigor mortis. Mm -hmm. And to Jennifer Carpenter's credit, and I'm going to raise one up for her on this. It's a lot to spin me out visibly, like viscerally the way this film does, but it does it every time. Yeah. It it makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah. Crunching bones. Yeah. Just the body should not look the way it's looking in this thing. The one reason I think I'm not as bothered by it as, as other exorcism films is because she's older, what, 1920, I think, is uh, her age. I always think she kind of has, like, a fighting chance. I think she can, you know, yeah. do a little bit more battle. I think it, it works so well in The Exorcist for me just because little 12-year-old Reagan is just so vulnerable, and what that film puts her through is just negligent on a filmmaking perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Just everything that's asked of her. So I'm always more troubled by that. That that always has always disturbed me a whole lot more by what's asked of her and what she's put through. And here I'm like, this is gruesome. I can't deny that. It, it's unholy gr- gruesome. But I'm like, I think she can pull through. I think she can get out of this at the end of the day. We'll see what, well, what kind, well obviously, I mean, the court case. She doesn't make it, right? Uh, you know, you said something a little while ago that I think leans into the part that bothers me. Yeah. If you're the boyfriend and you see your girlfriend on the floor in that state, and you're a relatively new couple. Yeah. How do you stick around? Yeah, I, yeah. We, what, what's keeping you around? We yeah. both raise an eyebrow, and we think, well, maybe it's time to find a new one, and relationship has just started, and mm-hmm. there are problems anyway, but whatever, as you get out. But if you're going to stay the course, and you see someone in that state, you want to take them, I, like, I would think like you want to take them, and embrace them to try to get through some physical contact or warmth or love to get them to release. But there's a line prior to any of that happening, which is in the church, when she's contorted backwards over herself, reaching out for the cross, and she looks at boyfriend and says, don't touch me. And she does it with these blood red eyes and this black mouth, essentially putting a very religiously profound barrier between the two of them that if you choose to cross this, I'm waiting here for you too. So you like this girl. And even if you aren't attracted to them, just the human part of you would make you want to find some way to ease that person's turmoil and, and discomfort. But she's so untouchable, not in a way that Hitchcock didn't want his woman to be touched because they would break, but because I don't know if you can love a piece of wood back into a more pliable state. Yeah. And so what do you do? And then it's talking to you in whether (laughs) Aramaic terms or very demonic terms. Yeah. 
Um, he's like, I got to find a way to unlock these contortioning skills where they're not demonic. I got to unlock them for my own benefit. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> so the that's, po- that's his long game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if she can move like that, wow, he's like, what oh, can we do? He's like, he's like, that's fun, but it's horrifying. Yeah. How do we make it less horrifying and more fun? <laughs> You're a sick man. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about the court case in this film. We mentioned a lot that this film takes place in a courtroom. Uh, a majority of it, 70, 80% of this movie takes place in a courtroom. So we've got Campbell Scott v. Laura Linney here. And for a majority of the film, it's like Campbell Scott's just, he opens strong. I think he's got a great opening argument. He whips out those two side-by-side pictures of Emily Rose pre-exorcism. Before and, and after. And then the the death shot, which is, oh. Mm-hmm. And this jury has to just be beside themselves at that point. Like, what's this case really going to be about? Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part, if you're going the science route, mental health, schizophrenia, or all those, you know, psychological diagnoses, I think he makes a pretty good case here. Uh, And we're talking about a guy that, you know, has, you know, a lot of religious background already. Uh, I'm talking about myself. (laughs) But I'm watching the film, and it was like, the film's purpose is to show, yeah, for every demonic assault you're going to show us, I can show you the epileptic seizure that it was most likely. And for a majority of this film, I'm like, you know what? He could be right. How, how am I to know? I wasn't in the room when it happened. Uh, what do you think of Campbell Scott's defense? And do you want to talk about Mr. Campbell Scott? Cause I know he's a name that always pops up for you, right? Yeah. I think he's a terrific lawyer in this. <laughs> I love also that he of the two is the more religious of the two attorneys. Mm-hmm. And he's having to fly in the face of and I think they did a forgiveness. Good, I think they did a good job of saying Christian, right? Yeah, Methodist, I think. Yeah, yeah. so which I'm, I'm pretty sure the exorcism thing, I think that's a strictly kind of Catholic thing. Mm-hmm. So even he doesn't really believe in that as a realm of possibility. Right. Yeah, I think he's terrific. He's cutthroat, brass bald. I represent the people. I represent Emily Rose. He's very articulate. He's very smart. He's got an edge to him. Uh, he's a formidable mm-hmm. prosecution lawyer. And essentially, there's a few moments where Laura Lenny, um, Aaron. Aaron Bruner. Bruner mm-hmm. kind of gets over him a little bit. But if I'm scoring that in a heavyweight fight, it's probably a lot of 10-8 rounds that yeah. he's beating her bad. Mm-hmm. Part of it is because she's got to rely on the mystic where he gets to rely on fact. hard yeah. fact. Mm-hmm. No black or white. Mm-hmm. I mean, no gray, sorry. Just black or white fact. Yeah. Or she's living in the gray. Yeah. But yeah, he's, he creams her. She even says so. We're getting creamed. And I don't know if that ever really changes. I don't think so. Even by the end of the film, when you've got Tom Wilkinson up on the stand twice, and I'm like, this is my most credible witness. And he's got very flimsy evidence at that, right? Mm-hmm. I still don't know if they do enough to, to sway it, and we'll get to the results of the trial at the end here. But uh yeah, at one point, uh, they, they kind of reach the halfway point of this trial, and Laura Linney and her little crony uh, kind of decide, okay, this isn't working. Like, we can't combat science with the religious. So, like, we just got to go all in on the, the religious. Yeah. Let's now try and prove that this is something that actually happened. So they bring an anthropologist onto the stand, and I guess that kind of helps them, but not really, right? We talked about that. She just comes across as sort of this mystic cultural hack that has 
created or forged a career in the university arena because it wouldn't play in any other part of society mm-hmm. that looks at the sum totality of collective possession across the globe. Yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. Seriously, that's that's so not a thing. Yeah. But what I did like about okay, so as much as that's a terrible witness. Witness. Yeah. I really did find what she said interesting because now what we're doing, and this this movie doesn't do this quite enough for me, is the conjuncture of science and religion together. And this woman presents a pretty compelling, if you want to use it as a viable testimony, mm-hmm. picture of the mental state of a person once it's been exposed to some possession by religion and then the attempts to try to shock the brain out of it. So the question that isn't asked, but you want to, you're dying to ask this woman in her class, her 400 level yeah. class, 500 level class, grad school, yeah. is do you think then that possession is a random neural firing in the brain that causes people to think that, or is it a result of the possessing element causing the brain to fire in such a way that makes you possessed. What's even what's even more compelling is she says the medicine that's being administered, Gabu Gabutrol. Gab, I always want to say gabapentin, Gabutrol, intoxicates the brain, creating a euphoric effect that does not allow the brain to start to draw delineation between what's fact and fiction and essentially traps the person in the possessed state because the brain can't take on it's it's in such a relaxed relaxed state it can't fire hard enough to shock the system mm-hmm. to cause the demonic possession to leave to leave and i don't know if any of that sounds like anything more than just a boatload of witch doctor bullshit <laughs> yeah <laughs> metaphysical bullshit yeah but man it's interesting well i think you know you know, think of this from, you know, a religious perspective. If you're growing up with some sort of religious background, you learn about higher powers and the good, but you mm. also learn, you're also told about evil, right? Yeah. And evil's name is the devil, right? We has many different names, Satan, Lucifer, Belial, whatever, Beelzebub, whatever you want to put your demons, we're also taught that along with the good. There's a scenario where if you're taking this medicine and it fucks up your brain that you treat those beliefs as reality, right? Yes. That you live out those manifestations of full-on possession because that's what you were told. That's what you grew up with. So, And as much as she's playing in a metaphysical space or yeah. a supernatural space with that, look, I think we can both agree mm-hmm. that there's plenty of evidence out there that people today are way too over-medicated. Yeah that prevent them from actually going through the natural hurt and healing that's necessary to, to get over something. Mm -hmm. I I think that whole bit is, uh, it's terrible testimony for Aaron's, (laughs) Aaron's defense. It's terrible. Yeah. No, like if I was on that jury, I would be, I roll upon, I roll like, are are we really doing that? Like I would be so cynical. Even Campbell Scott, doesn't he say he's like, which Judge, doctor are, Judge, are, we, are we taking this testimony as 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 serious? <laughs> yeah, right? well, and how can you not? Yeah, there's nothing that she say that you can substantiate with any facts. So they really are full on leaning into their new strategy, which is let's go all in on the mystic. But despite that being a terrible testimony, and Father Moore sitting there thinking like, man, I'm going to get the chair for this one. 
Oh, well, at least he'll have Emily Rose's story told, which is his whole goal, just to get her story out. Mm -hmm. It is a really interesting space that the movie plays in a little bit, not quite enough, but man, that testimony she gives, that's three and a half, four minutes of must-concentrate theory on the page. Mm -hmm. To Scott Derrickson's credit, who wrote this script, Mm -hmm. good on you, dude, because... That has no business being in this courtroom, but it's probably the most interesting testimony of everyone that gives any, other than the letter that's right at the end. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's where I, that's how where I like my exorcism films. I like the exorcism films that toy the line between religion and science. Where is the truth between all that gray? Is it the per- person's personal beliefs? Is it is something medically diagnosed? Is uh, it the 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 human the human body, ladies and gentlemen? You know this. I mean, it's the big. It's the most complex supercomputer on the planet yeah can do wild and crazy things but yeah how are you to dissuade the, this the, this testimony and in in between all this if Aaron you know she's being woken up at 3 a.m to burning toast and <sighs> uh exorcism tapes being played but she's also dealt another crucial bolt this high profile case that she uh had where she put this dude away he gets out and then went on like a murder spree yep Kind of wrecking her image again, right? So she does need, she needs a win now. She just kind of got dealt a, a public loss. I don't think she puts him, I think she gets him off. Yeah, that's right. That's she, right. Which is even worse. So she gets the guy off that gets her some street cred again, and then he goes killing 15 yeah, people. Yeah, you're right. Because one guy says, like, I thought he would have gotten the chair, right? Or some, some, something, the death penalty. And yeah, and he goes nuts. And so she's like, yeah, maybe I didn't do, I, I botched that one. So she has a lot more writing on this too. And then, yeah, you pointed out that really odd line she has. Yeah, of, good. I'm glad we're going there now. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can run with it. I'll, I'll just comment on it. Well, doesn't she say something like, this will this will be good for me? How, did, how exactly does she say it? She's in the cell talking to Father Moore. Yes. And she says, and once I get you off, the whole world will know that I did it. Yes. Some, yes. some vainglorious. Yeah, it's very selfish. Not about protecting him or doing the right thing, but heaping some more praise upon her name. And that's why we stopped for a second. I asked, have you read the screw tape letters mm-hmm. by CS Lewis? Yeah. And you said, no, but we've talked about them before for anybody that doesn't know. It's a really interesting religious philosophy book. That is the correspondence Persian letter style between two demons, uncle Wormwood or nephew Wormwood and uncle screw tape. And what it is, it's 40 scenarios where the demons are tricking mankind into sinning of his own account through things like vanity and greed and this whole structured philosophical argument by C.S. Lewis, who is a deeply religious man, mm-hmm. very religious man. Yeah, yeah, all that Narnia stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and how through the human condition and the, the the fallibility of the human condition, man essentially sinks his own ship. And these demons are saying, if you just turn this dial a little bit and this dial a little bit, they'll think that they're doing this really good thing. But at the end of the day, what they've done is they have completely taken anything that was positive or healthy or holy and turned it into exploitative of them own selves in vain vanity or greed. Okay. So blah, blah, blah. Right. That's kind of the theory. Mm-hmm. Read the book. If you haven't, it's, I, it's, yeah. it's an afternoon read yeah. and the ending is fantastic. Like M night Shamila needs to read the ending of this book <laughs> and I want to give it away, but the ending yeah. is terrific. 
when she says that, this is Derrickson calling back upon the ideas of man in the pursuit of good, undoing themselves. Her line, not to make sure that the world is aware, like Father Moore once, of the presence of demons so that we can fight them off, not to save this man who she thinks is maybe innocent, not to help his his case, which I don't care if I'm guilty or innocent, just get this story out. Yeah. All of that shit is secondary because that line, and everyone will know that it was me, whatever, it's something close to that. Yeah. Falls to the wayside because what's sitting there as the third member in that preparation for the witness is vanity. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen that from her. Yeah. Belial yeah. is absolutely feeding on that. Have you noticed that after she says that, Belial doesn't show up again in her house anymore? Yeah. Because it's like, I don't need to do anything more. She's doing it for me. Yeah, she's already twisted. And it almost undermines that other scene that they have where, you know, she finds that locket in the snow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost like the moment of belief where I was like, yeah, it's my initials. This has to be some sort of thing. That's the moment where she should say, I'm going to help prove your story, right? Yeah, she, she turns mystic for a minute with the father and yeah. says, look, God gave me, I think, the green light that I'm on the right path. I found this beautiful locket that's a heart in the snow. Yeah. And we're assigning value to a rather mystic thing. And we can get into, everybody does that a little bit now and then and whatever, right? Okay, so, but the thing that's interesting with her is she makes it a point to tell father more about that. Mm-hmm. And it tells me that I'm on the right path after this really horrible day, almost like God was saying, Aaron, keep going forward, keep going forward, keep going and she doesn't wear it. Yeah. She's innately flawed, Jesse. Mm-hmm. And is it is it flawed because she's faithless or is it flawed because she's too vain to oh, have oh, faith? Oh, she's definitely too vain. But then I don't know if there's a point other than her rejecting Comfior's offer at the end that proves she's made some progress. She's made some progress. Yeah. It's like almost a little yeah. too late, but it's 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 there, but that that line that you mentioned that we've mentioned kind of screws it up a little bit, right? It's, it's it's almost placed at the wrong point in the movie. Like, I buy that moment 30 minutes in, right? Oh, you're saying it's too late in the in the yeah, her story arc? I think it's like an hour 10. It's, it's definitely after that locket scene, right? Well, because then, the, yeah, you're right. Because then what's the question is, what is it that makes her finally see things through a less vain lens? And I don't know what the turning point is at Father Moore's testimony. Well, the, the turning point has to be, hey, we're running out of witnesses here, so let me get Father up on the stand mm-hmm. and... His testimony is, you know, it's good because he's the first-hand witness, but then it's almost like, well, how much of this are we going to believe, right? Yeah. And he's got some crazy stories, too. I mean, he's seeing cloaked figurines running around the, the rain and his experiences up at the, the Rose Farmstead. I mean, it's all very wild. But he had another guy with him kind of mm-hmm. documenting. So they try and get this guy in the stand, and he, dude, he, he's spooked by pigeons. <laughs> yeah. He, he's really uneasy, but he does agree to testify until it's too late and it's coming to the day like, hey, you're going to testify. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, it might be my oh my God moment of the movie because, again, I don't want to laugh, but he gets creamed by this car out of nowhere. And uh, when I say creamed, it's the capital C creamed, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just like, where did that car come from? And just this guy is DOA dead. And now they're like, oh, I guess I got to put father... Well, the crazy pants back on the stand here. This is all we have is this little tape recorder that has all this auditory, non-visual evidence, which always has to be a little questionable, yeah, right? Yeah, We need to see, show, don't tell, in the courtroom, as well as your screenplay. 
Yeah, I think they're working up against it, but we get to the moment. The move, title of the film is The Exorcism of Emily Rose. We want to see what does this exorcism look like. I got to tell you, it's pretty well done. Yeah. Uh, this It starts out in the bedroom, and, you know, for everyone out there, I mean, you know, the exorcism, and maybe we mentioned this when we did Friedkin's film, is such a nasty, dark little secret of the Catholic Church. It's not advertised. It's not like you can, like, go to the Vatican and, like, they got, like, a booth there, like, sign up for your exorcism. Uh, You got to get, like, a medical diagnosis and tangible evidence. And then, like, the... I feel like the Pope has to sign off on it. And you're like, yeah, yeah, let's do Mm -hmm. it, right? Thumbs up, thumbs down, right? It's really hard to do, and it's not advertised, and they don't even want to talk about it because it's so taboo, right? Yeah. And so they go about doing this exorcism after all of that, after everything he's seen, and all the dialects and tongues being spoken. And man, Emily Rose goes just batshit in this scene, and all the 11 tabby cats in this house, they all start attacking Tom Wilkinson. Again, I don't want to laugh, but I kind of do because it's just so silly. Yeah, it's hard to watch. All these digi- digital cats, which are just like, and but everything's going crazy at this point. She jumps out the window, mm-hmm. uh, runs to the barn, and then we get this barn sequence, which I think is really well done stuff here. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I now command you, tell me your name. I thought you Hear, therefore, and fear, Satan, enemy of the faith. Give me your name, demon. Names! Names! Ancient serpents. Depart from this servant of God. Tell me your six names. We are the ones who dwell within. But me who shut your head, but told me I came in your own Who are we in the barn with? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this one, one thing I, I, I couldn't figure out was like, because she mentions Cain, Nero, Judas. And I don't know if those are the names of the demons or this demon also inhabited those. That's who they've inhabited. Crazy, yeah. yeah. I was like, hey, she got a she got a primo demon over here. Mm-hmm. Like, if she has Lucifer, the king of all demons, possessing her. I mean, this ain't no Pazuzu. It's Lucifer, ladies right. and gentlemen. Yeah, this isn't Toby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's Toby on the the, the 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 rankings of the demons, man? Uh, this scene is wild, people. Uh, they're in the barn. There's a storm. It's also Halloween because we, we had to pick this scariest day. drama. But what was his reasoning? Was that like because the it's the, the the spirits are out? It might be better to like trap it or have it expelled. He has some sort of logic for doing it on Halloween because yeah, was, why not pick the most pagan holiday I've ever to do it on? Because that's super holy. Exactly. Um, look, this yeah, is a well, nice well, list though for the demon. Hey, are we uh, possess the, uh, do the exorcism on Halloween or move Michael Myers, <laughs> transport him on Halloween? What's yeah. a, what's a worse decision there? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Those are both pretty bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, the names, yeah, it's, this, is a, this is a high demon. Nero, Legion, Judas, Cain. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out and says Bilal, or I forget what the, what syllable Bilal, is accented, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, but then comes out that 
no, that's not really two. We're just Lucifer. Yeah. So you're starting to wonder, is this demon, because demons can be tricky. They're manipulative, yeah. Yeah. Manipulating you, are you really face-to-face with the devil himself? Because if you remove the D from devil, what word is left? Evil. Have you ever thought about that? Mm-hmm. Have you? It just sort of occurred to me today. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's obviously there, but I've never thought about mm-hmm. that. Anyway, she uses that word, or it uses that word a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the devil or not, but regardless, Father Moore is way outgunned here. Oh, she's way outgunned. She's dropping snakes from the rafters and like, dude, all the bugs are and Anno, dude, these horses could not get out of this barn fast enough. They're like, dude, Pa Rose has to take a hoof to the head. I mean, it's everything kind of goes to hell here. And this is what I love about it because I guess this is the turning point of Act Two. Things are worse now than they were when you started per screenwriting beats. The exorcism fails. Uh, uh, they have to. I mean, I think we want our exorcisms to be chaotic. I mean, think of Friedkin's film and Father Marin and Karis. Mm-hmm. They're in that little freezer box. And they're... They, Got to do it a couple times. It's chaotic. It's right. I mean, it's we're levitating. We're spewing. Uh, we're seeing visions of Iraq. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going nuts. And I, I think this film does a really good job in the exorcism scene, right? I mean, you say it all the time, too. The title of your film is usually what your film's about. If this is the centerpiece <laughs> of the story, Make it. this film, this scene has to work. And I think it does. And I think Derrickson understands that. Mm-hmm. So... Where do you go from this point? Because my question is this. This is just a metaphysical, in theory, possession question for you. Yeah. If Bilal has possessed Emily Rose and on occasion leaves Emily Rose to return to Aaron Bruner's apartment to scare and cause havoc there, does that mean that Emily Rose for a short period of time is no longer possessed or is this demon well, able? Well, well, remember she's dead at that point. Right. So if it expelled her body, oh, I guess you're right. And oh. is, yeah. Okay. But in theory, yeah. Um, if that was happening. Okay. So you're right. That's, that's a legacy problem with me and storytelling. Like, no, which but beat came before, but it's a, it is. I don't think. That, would you be unpossessed for a minute? I think she is at a time because the very next sequence, I'll play the audio for it. I mean, she is having moments of levity. I mean, she has this visage of the Virgin Mary right out in this open, foggy field. I asked the Blessed Mother, "Why do I suffer like this? Why did the demons not leave me tonight?" She said, "I am sorry, Emily." <sighs> The demons are going to stay where they are. Then she said, you can come with me in peace, freed of your bodily form, or you can choose to continue this. You will suffer greatly, but through you, many will come to see that the realm of the spirit is real. The choice is yours. have that moment i think you know there's like a window of opportunity right i mean the demon's not fully at bay maybe the exorcism did work for a little bit at that fact to be proposed with that question i don't know though i think i'm going with the virgin mary i think i've, I've had it with this demon and yeah, yeah if, if i had that descent end game 
uh, because th- there's this whole thing now. Now that Father Moore is telling the story, he's like, well, now we got to make Emily a saint. And I'm like, what Catholic agenda are we following here now, people? Mm-hmm. Are, are, are you trying to tell the story? Or now you're now you're applying for sainthood? And I'm like, what 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 are we doing here? It's, it's Yeah. And then, you know, okay, let's bring the other side of the aisle back to it. Let's bring Campbell Scott back in. And I think his final-ish testimony is pretty strong. I mm-hmm. mean, we hear the audio tapes of this exorcism. And he's like, are you aware of Emily Rose's uh, advanced catechism of Hebrew and uh, German Ar- and, Ger- Aramaic and Aramaic and Latin? And me and you, man, our skin's crawling because we're like, man, I'm glad we didn't have to do that. No kidding. Uh, yikes, that sounds uh, torturous. But he's like, oh, are you also aware that humans have two sets of vocal cords and can access them at the same time? And I'm like, you know what, Campbell Scott, you're kind of pulling me over to your side of the case mm-hmm. here. Uh, but I think that's where the fun of the film is, right? I mean, there is two sides of the same same coin here, this this Emily Rose possession case. Well, at this point in the the trial proceedings, it's pretty obvious that Moore and Bruner have been completely boat raced. They are roused. They wiped out, Mm -hmm. creamed. It might be an understatement. Mm -hmm. If your best testimony was the cultural possession anthropologist, anthropologist, man, you are really, really without a whole lot of stable ground. I guess the priest and the cassette recording amount to something, but I don't know how admissible in court that is because without the visual, that could be anything, especially if that was today. Who mm. couldn't make that tape? Yeah. And then the other bullet in the chamber is the final note, essentially the suicide note that Emily leaves Father Moore yeah. that tells him, this is the opportunity that I was presented with and I would rather stay here on earth so that my story can be told and people can be warned of this this evil realm of spirits mm-hmm. that that's what the movie is yeah as a juror i'd be like yeah bullshit um this is a we don't need to deliberate anything more than for about 10 minutes here right everybody like this this is and it is it's a wipeout yeah unless they looked out into eight catholics on this juror a thing that like also have a similar belief set yeah well, there's two here and i think i'd probably be guilty as well yeah <laughs> so i mean maybe not even then yeah uh so it's looking grim, and uh, Confiore comes in and was like, you put that father up on the stand again, and you can kiss your job goodbye. And I don't think they have a choice at that point. They have to put him up there. He reads the letter, yep. and it looks like it's curtains. And the jury goes to deliberate, and they come back with the verdict of guilty, right? Yep. Uh, and not surprising, I don't think. I don't think there's been a lot of really good evidence to not dissuade them, mm-hmm. even amongst the rumblings of the audience of just being like, yeah, this is kind of a crazy case here. Uh, but this is surprising, being that they want to um, sentence right away, and and the sentence is time served versus any type of 10 years in prison or any type of death penalty, which I don't really think is on the table for... What is uh, the homicide? What is it? Uh, not it's not involuntary negligent negligent homicide. Yeah, is the the charges here? So can carry up to ten years in prison, and they they go for time served. So yeah, well, yeah, crazy, right? It's just it's you almost see that they did enough to win over the jurors that are like, yeah, you're guilty, and we can't prove without a reason beyond a reasonable doubt that you didn't have anything to do with it, but we don't think you should be punished for this kind of outlier case, right? Is so, the jury 
supposed to be the conscience of society in this film? Possibly, but you know, there's they're, they're kind of a non-factor, right? I mean, we don't really get we don't go to the juror quarters, or no. there's not like a head juror. And I swear to God, I swear those juror members changed every time they showed them. So uh, the reason I ask you that is if if the jury is the conscience of society, mm-hmm. then and we measure the adjudication of guilt or innocence followed by the bestowment of punishment. What does that say about society after this case has been done regarding the possibility of evil spirits? Like, what is your takeaway that society, let's just play for a minute that yeah. it is. The, what does that say about society learning or have they not learned? Does it say we're open-minded? I mean, we're open-minded for multiple possibilities? Because, you know, my ta- yeah. yeah, my takeaway in that is, is that as a priest, you are held to an impossible standard. Yeah. And if you don't fulfill it, then it's essentially on you. And if we want to use the term lamb of God, Mm -hmm. then they are such sheep that they're helpless without some religious leader. But if the religious leader fails, the attempt, an honest, sincere attempt was enough, ultimately saying, we are going to be defeated we appreciate your efforts. It's never going to be good enough. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to hold you accountable. I, I, what? That yeah. that decision <laughs> for me is all over the place. Yeah. I, I'm glad that he doesn't have to do time because he's our hero. Mm-hmm. But if that jury, and I think that jury to me is supposed to be... The conscience. The conscience of society. Mm-hmm. We, we agree that there's plenty of demons out there and we can't defeat them all and we're just going to do the best we can. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. pretty dark. <laughs> but I think they both kind of, the characters kind of admit they can't go back to their old ways of life because oh. Aaron Bruner rejects the the law firm's offer of co-partner or whatever. She's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm out. And then she asks him, like, you going to go back and practice? And he's like, yeah, I'm kind of out too, right? Like, he really can't go back to that normal way of life. And so, yeah, How do you go back to Sunday Mass? No, yeah, not after what you've been through and the stuff you've seen. No so. Way. Yeah, they kind of just leave it at that, and he picks uh, the epitaph on the on the gravestone, which is pretty grim and morose. Uh, and then an aspect, and then we, we could talk about that. I kind of saved it for the end here. The end of the film, you know, they both kind of go on their ways. You know, Aaron Bruner is finally able to get a good night of sleep without, you know, hearing all the bumps and noises in the night. She can look at her clock, and it ain't 3 a.m., uh, but then we get text on the screen, and I thought this is just an odd move because it is loosely based on a true story, and we'll cover that here in a second. But it's still mostly a work of fiction of what we've seen in the film. But yet we're putting text on what these characters are doing after the fact. I thought that was an odd move, right? Mm-hmm. It just it it just felt weird, and it's almost like we're misleading the audience watching the movie. I think we had the same issue as some of the Warren stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah, especially after, you know, all the snake oil salesman stuff that, like, we kind of dived into of just, like, why are you putting that up there when it's just, like, as far from the truth as something can be other than that's your selling factor, right? That's how the movie got produced is... This is a true story. Yeah, based on a true story, which, you know, WGA Guild, you know, which, hey, they settled. (laughs) Did they? I didn't know. Yeah, the writers The writers are good? Yeah, the writers are good. I wonder what did you get the results on this? Well, this, no, that's I, a whole, that's I, a, I haven't read the read the writer's manifesto yet, but hopefully they got they got some better uh, uh, do. 
uh, they can go forth and kind of be treated a little bit better on, on, on these film productions. Fantastic. Right? So we just got to get the, the actors now. Exactly. Uh, All right, good. But yeah, what's the, what, what is the rule? It's a very loose rule with the, but based on a true story, right? There's based on inspired by and true story. And I forget which of the top of those is the highest, but it's somewhere around 25 to 30% is the actual fact that you have to put in the film to make that claim. Yeah. Inspired by is essentially the sun shined in both places, you know, um, based on is I, I think that's the highest one, but it's anywhere from like five to 30%. Yeah. Yeah. So um, not much. Yeah. The actual real case I did, I did do some digging. I know you did too. Um, the woman's name uh, was a German woman named Annalise, uh, Mitchell. Yeah. M- Mikkel. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce that last name, but her death was death by malnutrition to which her parents and the priests were charged with negligent homicide. So very similar to the film, right? I uh, wrote some facts here for the people. So at 16, she had a seizure and was diagnosed with psychosis, which I don't even know what psychosis is, caused by temporal lobe epilepsy, which they do try and play with in this film as well. By the age of 20, she became intolerant to religious objects and began to hear voices. Uh, after the medicine didn't work for five years, they were convinced it was a demonic possession and appealed to the Catholic Church for an exorcism. She stopped eating and died of malnourishment and dehydration this is the crazy part. After 67 exorcism sessions, which that's a lot. That's, a, that's lot. a lot for the body to mentally go through, right? Whatever you're going through, right? Poor her. Yeah. Uh, they were sentenced uh, to six months in jail as well as a, as, as a fine. So they were found guilty just like this film, but not like in the nice send them off into the sunset with some goodwill. It's like, no, you're doing time and you're going to pay for this as well. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. That case is very fascinating. I think it's pretty well covered in a lot of other podcasts and doc- documentaries, so you can go read read about it. And I almost put, and I didn't know if it was real or if this was something that they made on YouTube, but there was the Annalise exorcism tapes, which was like the actual exorcism recordings. And I listened to it, and I was going to give us a little audio snippet of it, but Matt, it was it was too disturbing to, to play. It was, it was really bothering me, and I was like... Yeah, I don't know if I want to put that out on the airwaves and just like freak people out while they're in line at Starbucks, right? Right. It was, uh, I think it would have troubled you too. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I made a judgment call on that one. Thanks. But uh, yeah, what do you think about, about all that? But, you know, the real life case, I mean, in Germany, so we're not in the Midwest here. Um, how does that play into how they did the story for you? Yeah, I think it's fine. I probably don't want to see that blow for blow the way it was. I think this is probably a more compelling story. A story tends to be in 90 minutes or mm-hmm. a hundred minutes in this case. My bigger question is how did this script miss so many people and find its way to Derrickson? Yeah. That's an interesting piece. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, who'd be really good for this? That yeah. guy that did Hellraiser five. Who the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. Versus all of what's this? Oh, five. Was this? Oh, I think three? It's, it's five. Oh, yeah. five. Yeah. Versus all of the other guys that were going pretty, pretty heavy at that time. Uh, that's a, that's an interesting get. I wonder if he just searched the option market and found something that he could find. Because you know, once he got it, he wrote it. He spec'd this, mm-hmm. so a lot of interest in there. But that's a tough one, Jesse. Yeah. Do you want a documentary or do you want? A feature film. On that case? 
just in general, if I have my choice between watching well, a documentary, probably, or if you, I'm going to go to feature film. Yeah, every time. I probably will too. But it, you know, if it's a well done documentary, like I yeah. could be entertained by by that. Absolutely, in a very morbid sense of the word. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think it. I think it. Yeah, it's fascinating. So when the title card, like, I think like it's Screen Gems, such and such features presents based on a true story. You got to take this one with a little grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have this like crazy like like. To kill a mockingbird court case, like with this exorcism film, it was a much more kind of like by the books. And also in the case, kind of religion be science, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. epilepsy, temporal lobe, epilepsy, psychosis, didn't the medicine didn't work for five years. So then we do 67 exorcism. I don't know. 67 exorcism sessions sounds a little negligent in my book, right? Yeah. And the medicine too. Five years of the same medicine that didn't work. That yeah. sounds negligent too. Yeah. That's the other thing too, right? 67 exorcisms, what, 35 wasn't enough? <laughs> five years of the medicine, I guess year five was really going to make the difference. And exorcism number 67, it sounds like this poor tortured soul had a lot of negligence around her all yeah, the way. Yeah. Hey, I got a real good feeling about 42. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, today's on a Sunday and yeah. it's Halloween on Monday. Yeah. Let's roll out number 39. Oh, man. This yeah. one's going to work. Yeah, that, that, that sounds brutal. Absolutely brutal. Um, but that's the end of the film. We get our, our title cards. We get our credits. It's been a wild uh, little watch here. Um, but a couple little anecdotes for you. $20 million budget, $145 million gross. So, yeah, this thing did turn a profit, uh, which is impressive. Uh, Laura Linney did recommend Jennifer Carpenter after they did had done a play together on Broadway or whatever. So good on you, Laura Linney. And then you just bestowed, bestowed some praise on Laura Lynn. Yeah, I think it's 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 it's, it's warranted at, at, at this point. And then a little nugget that I know you are going to love. Mm -hmm. It's a little creepy, uh, but Jennifer Carpenter did claim some weird occurrence. Of course, you do when you make one of these movies, right? Everyone's got a story. Yeah. But her story is she'd wake up in the middle of the night to her radio turning on, and uh, in the middle of the night, I don't know if it was during the witching hour, but it was consistently the same song kept coming on, and it was Pearl Jam's "Alive." Weird. Yeah, very weird. I'm still alive. <laughs> Just wow. every night. I mean, hey, I mean, I might let it play. I like that song, but it's a little creepy. Surprised she didn't default to black. If you're going to go there, let's go ahead and get black. Jennifer Carpenter might have a little grunge demon. I don't know. <laughs> There's something going on there. Yeah. But uh, let's wrap up with a couple questions here. What's your favorite tasting note? Moment, scene, sequence of exorcism of Emily Rose. The barn scene. Her naming all six of the demons and the visage of Bilal and then bragging essentially about the legacy of people that she's tortured to get there. It's uncomfortable. It's hard to watch the horses, the lightning, the sound expertly done. Yeah. That's, that's a great moment. In yeah. This film. I think I'm, I might take the, just the, yeah, the whole barn exorcism scene. Cause yeah, it, it is very well done and it's the, the staple of the film, this particular film, this genre of films, that scene has to work. And I think in other films it, it really doesn't sometimes yeah. it, it might leave, leave you le left a little underwhelmed, but I think the film builds up to it nicely and it, it does play re really well. And I like how it's being told to the court as like this, like story, right? Mm -hmm. They're not getting all the cool visuals that, that, that we are. They just have to listen to it. So yeah, that one's going to be mine as well. What do we got for the oh my God! moment of the film? That church scene when she bends over backwards with those red eyes and that black mouth telling her soon to be boyfriend, don't touch me. Creeps me out. 
really close with that in the scene in the in the dorm room. Both of those are hard to watch. Like I'm not kidding. Like I yeah. had to rub my arms afterwards because yeah. the hair was standing up. You're like I'm freaking out here, man. Yeah. Uh, good choice. Yeah, and there was something weird about that church too. It like this like purple, purple. stained glass. Like there's very hues of purple uh, both times. Even when Wilkinson was seeing his little hooded demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm gonna pick the the first uh, or the moment of possession. Right, that like a In demon her dorm room. demon assault sequence, which I guess I paid attention to, but then like watching here, I was like, I was like, no, that's like like a full on like I'm entering you. Like right, it's. The way it's done, the way her she's like pinned down, it it looks very uncomfortable. It just looks really awful. But and then it releases her right once it's the the moment's been consummated. It leaves and now it's in her, and that's that's troubling, right? Well, her legs are together, and you can see two like knee depressions on the outside of her legs, mm-hmm. like someone is crawling up her. Mm-hmm. Ugh, yeah, yeah, it's oof. yeah. Yeah, that a pretty pretty troubling uh, moment there, but yeah, that's the inciting incident of the the demonic stuff, right? Yeah. Who's the master distiller on the Exorcism of Emily Rose? I think we both have the same one here. Yeah, Jennifer Carpenter for sure. Yeah, great performance. It does make you pause as to why that career really didn't take off, unless it was you know ruined by this film. I mean, you can make that case with a lot of amazing horror performances, right? Mm-hmm. Basically reduced to a voice actress these days. I know that's kind of a shame. Uh, I guess she came back for the Dexter revival, which I did not partake in. Uh, I was pretty out on that show after oh, um, mm-hmm. after its later seasons. But yeah, I think I don't think that's warranted. I think you know, with the right role, I think she could do pretty well, right? I mean, she's an interesting screen presence and very capable actor. But yep. I mean, do we really need her to do a film like this again just to show that? I mean, that would be unfair, right? So. Fantastic performance. The body contortioning, it's just you're putting your body through hell when you do these types of roles. Ask mm-hmm. Linda Blair, mm-hmm. ask a lot of these, you know, other people that are in similar types of films. I mean, you really put yourself through it and I it shows up on screen. Boy, to that then, to yeah. her. Thanks for the sacrifice, Jen. How are you going to rate and grade The Exorcism of Emily Rose? We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Tippy Top Shelf. Where are you going for your second pick? recommendation love this film but i'm not going to give it top shelf it's single barrel for me it's unique to tell this story through the setting of a courtroom drama i don't know about the time we sort of talked off mic that it's probably two-thirds to one-thirds courtroom drama versus actual demonic possession which i think might turn off some people Mm -hmm. but that's a really unique way to present this story and i like that angle And I think it allows your actors and actresses to really present some different chops other than in the throes of madness regarding the exorcist and possession is a more calm discovery, tortured Q&A, who's good, who's bad, who's right, what side are you on, what side should you not be on, who's winning, who's losing, cerebral piece that really gets to the core of can these people pull off dialogue Mm -hmm. in a scene with no glitz. It's just them talking and the answer is yes for me excellent excellent uh yeah i think i'm gonna come in around like a call plus call to call plus uh i think it's a fantastic idea i think the execution at times is a little middling at at points but the exorcism scene is good the courtroom stuff is mostly pretty good uh yeah i guess i am a little shocked that it did do as well as it did money wise just because i do think it's a little over long and 
has some pacing issues, you know, you know, kind of jumping back and forth between the two, but effective moments. I mean, the acting's good. Uh, there's a little bit more I want out of the, like the whole idea itself, but no, I think it's, 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 it's a pretty, it's a pretty decent watch. It's, I don't know if I have it as high as, as you, but if this is on, I'll, I'll watch it again and probably pick up on, on a few other things. And I, I love the morality play of the science V religion. I'm always end, endlessly fascinated by that concept, uh, in horse specifically. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if we had had a courtroom drama with this particular type of genre film prior to that, but is this one? And man, I th- I need to go reassess Derrickson's filmography and kind of see where I come on that barometer, right? Can I sour mash something for you to see if it would change a little bit? Sure. Take the the title cards at the end of the film and replace that with another scene back at the sidebar where Campbell Scott's character walks up and sits next to her at the bar and they bury the hatchet and he admits to coming to a more spiritual place through this. Mm. Yeah, that'd be pretty interesting. I'm not saying they launch a new a firm together. Firm together that <laughs> yeah. defends the the Warrens, but yeah. um yeah, one I mean, more because the title cards are a little bit clunky, especially when the names aren't the same names and the events weren't the same events. So yeah, does I, it really matter? And do you really even care? Yeah, I need the title cards out of here. But yeah, scene and there's something that shows that she's yes grown a little bit yes. more. And then yeah, we could pull from him. Then we soften the antagonist a little bit as well, the sub antagonist, right? Well, he might even offer pitch her to come join his law firm, and she says, "I'm pro bono these days." Mm. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, I think it's still a pretty good watch if you haven't seen it in a while. Uh, I think yeah, for it's also PG thirteen, right? I yeah. mean, I, that's hard to do in a kind of cut cut down, slimmed down way of hard hitting horror. So we also watched the unrated version, which I don't know if there was anything in there that justified like. And there wasn't because I watched the not unrated version. Yeah, when I watched it, and they're the same film. Yeah, an an alternative way. So yeah, I was like, did we see something extra in there that was so extreme it needed an alternative cut? And I don't think so. So, yeah. um, but definitely check it out if you haven't seen it in a while. I think yeah, it's 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 a good recommendation on your on your picks there, in your yeah, video. especially moving into October. Tis the time. Yeah, in your video store. Well, to that, to your rating, to your rating. Let's wrap this one up with our nightcap. Okay, so because this film mixes two genres that we don't normally see, I thought we could have some fun with that. So if this is courtroom drama and horror, I told you to give me three films that you liked that did the same thing by mixing two genres, horror and something else. Opposing genres, right? Opposing genres, dueling genres. Yeah, I tried to do like... A different one for each one, not just like pull from the same one for all three. So, did either one of us find the horror musical? Uh, not on my list, but they're they are out there. Yeah, that's for sure. There's a great uh horror slasher out there called Stage Fright that has it, Meatloaf and Andy McDowell in it. Mm-hmm. It's actually really good. It's really funny, and I'm not a musical guy, but no. even those moments work really well for me. So, check that one out. 
number three for me, I'm going Horror Western. I'm going for a very intense ride. I've seen it a couple times now, and hey, this might be a good episode one of these days. I'm going Bone Tomahawk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you seen it? We have it. I've never seen it. It's I a, know all about it, though. It's a rough watch. Yeah. Uh, it's got my guy, Kurt Russell, in it. Uh, Patrick Wilson, uh, speaking of Mr. James Wan, and uh, Matthew Fox. Interesting little cast, but, man, that thing careens into some really uncomfortable stuff. And I, I don't know if we ever get a, real, a lot of, like, horror westerns. Uh, I think you can make the case for, like, a near dark being kind of like a neo-western, right? A modern western, but... I think that one's a little harder to do. Uh, I think that film handles it really well. And if you want to make people uncomfortable, yeah, there you go. There's the one for you. Bone Tomahawk is a good one. Okay, good. Three for you, three for me. We're going to go with horror and erotic, and that's The Hunger. We did a whole show on it. I'm not going to cover it again. There you go. Horror and erotic, The Hunger. Excellent. Well, I'll move right into my number two. I'm going horror action and a film that I think uh, more people need to see. I think it's got a, some fun cult appeal to it. It is uh, Adam Weingard's The Guest with Dan Stevens and Micah Monroe. And it's very much almost kind of like a proto John Wick type of film. But the elements of horror are very much at play in this like army vet that comes back to visit like the fallen the family of his fallen comrade, and you know this guy's off his rocker. He's sexy as hell, but he can kill people left and right, and it becomes like this action kind of horror film. It's it's weird. It's it's kind of slasher, but it's more guns and like that type of like gun foo fighting with him. Mm. Have you done the guest? Mm-mm. Oh, the guest is fantastic. Yeah, we should do it. Yeah, that's a good one. Good. Yeah, number two for me, uh, I guess is the quintessential piece in. The horror documentary space, otherwise known as found footage, mm. it's got to be paranormal activity. The best I think that's ever been done there. Yeah. Uh, could maybe argue two gives it a good run for its money and maybe depending on the day might be better. But for whatever Blair Witch was and some of those early entries, this one really figured it out. And I do think that for all of the frustrating things that series became, through two entries, it had a chance at being an all-timer. Yeah. But this is the first one, so I love that. In the horror space, we love we love trying to fool the audience, right? It's based on a true story, it's inspired by a true story, or this footage you're watching is real. Like, <laughs> It's fun. Yeah. My number one, the clear-cut number one, I had to have a horror comedy somewhere on this list. One of my top ten, in my top ten favorite films of all time, it's Sam Raimi's Evil Dead Part to uh my favorite film in that franchise my favorite film that that guy's ever done uh i just never get tired of watching it but it has the horror because it's so gruesome and over the top but it's funny because it's slapstick and it's that Raimi bruce campbell charm that i never get tired of i love evil dead 2 to death more than one more than army of darkness more than the remakes more than whatever that new one was it's number two yeah well this just Air just got let out of this balloon mm-hmm. because my genre is also horror and comedy. It has to be, right? And it's not that one, but the one right after it. And for me, it's Army of Darkness. Yeah. Um, the Hand, the it's Bruce. Yeah, it's it's masterpiece filmmaking. Yeah. 
Hey, I'll give a top shelf rating to Army uh, uh, to Evil Dead Two, but I'll also give it to Army of Darkness. That as would be well. a fun cast. Oh, I would love to do it, man. And we we do five entries: do the free, the three original by Raimi, and then the two follow up remakes that we have now. The remake, and then yeah, Evil Dead Rise. Oh man, I would love to do it. That'd be so fun. Yeah, we'll cue that up for a future cast because I, I love I love that series so much for so many different ways, but. Army of Darkness just goes like for full almost comedy at times, right? Mm-hmm. This medieval kind of like sword and sandals kind of caper mixed with horror, but it's just like full laughs at that point. It's it's totally different tonally from where they started in the first one. I really like that. Honorable mentions. Honorable mentions. Let's see. Well, if I'm going to add other horror comedy, American Werewolf in London mm-hmm. is really high up there. Um uh, let me think for a second. Uh, horror mockumentary. I thought what we do in the shadows. Yeah. I thought that fit pretty well. That's that's also a horror comedy too, right? Yeah. Um. What about you? Two, mm-hmm. and they both kind of fit in the same space. I could probably even do three, and it's the socially conscious horror film, which couldn't probably be further from the normal like day to day life that I lead. But you got to go with Stepford Wives, mm. the original. Yeah. Get Out has to be considered. And like I said earlier, it follows. Yeah. Those are good choices. Yeah. And, you know, it follows is almost like it's like a, it's a slasher too, right? And in a way, in a strange little ghost, it's a ghost slasher. Sexual slasher. slasher. Ghost slasher. Yeah. (laughs) Sexual slasher. Yeah. Sexual ghost slasher. Uh, And I think some erotic thrillers can fall into that. I wasn't about to put Sliver on my list, but like I could make a case for Basic Instinct being a little horror film too. Peeping Tom. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, those that that's another really good one. Yeah, dude, Sliver ain't ever making one of my lists. No, it'd be fun to do though. Oh, absolutely. Maybe the worst ending line in any movie ever. ever. Like it's just everything about that film is just so stupid. But it would be an amazing hour and a half conversation talking about why. <laughs> it's just like Hitchcock after Suspicion looked over and said, "That's how you're ending that film." Yeah. Wow, that's terrible. Sliver. (laughs) Uh, Well, excellent, Matt. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for bringing Emily Rose to the podcast archives now. We've exercised this this particular film now. This house is clean. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of cats live here. (laughs) Too many tabby cats. Uh, But you got one more pick on the Matt's Picks shelf in our video store. So what's going to be your final recommendation pick for Spooky Season Month? Where are we going for week three? Horror movie with Hugh Grant directed by Ken Russell. The Lair of the White Worm. I think this is one that we've never spoken about on the show. Yeah. but And something that's, you know, we've had few opportunities for this, but I've never seen it. Wow, here we go. Yeah. It's the first. So should I just go in? Don't I won't watch any trailers. I won't watch anything. So let's go raw. Let's just go right in. Fresh. Yeah. Excellent. Vampire, right? Ish, yeah. Vampire-ish? Yeah. Hey, I love it. New film for me, new film for the audience to go check out, and there might be some people that have seen it, but hey, that sounds pretty good to me. It's only one time through for me also, so it's almost raw for me as well. Okay. I think I did this with Blaisdell way back in college. Excellent, excellent. Well, we got that. uh, Got that coming to you next week. Wrap that up, and then we'll get into our very next cast here But, hey, thank you for listening, everyone. Hey, we got to get going. There's some spooky shenanigans going on in the barn just right outside. We got to go let those animals out, snakes, whatever the hell. Um, But, hey, you might want to bring your Bible along with you. You have horses? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
hey, man, I hope one doesn't hoof you in the head. Yeah. But, hey, we'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Exorcism of Emily Rose is property of Screen Gems, Lakeshore Entertainment, Firm Films, and Mist Entertainment. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Will you be able to return to your parish? I can't go back. Not now. Once you've looked into the darkness, I think you carry it with you for the rest of your life. What about you? I believe you've seen the darkness too. I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm seeing.